Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, we advise extra caution for our listeners. Myra Hindley's crimes against children and young teenagers were particularly disturbing. As a warning, this episode includes descriptions and discussions of rape, sadism, pedophilia, child abuse, and child murder. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Between 1963 and 1965, children began disappearing across Manchester, England. Pauline Reed, John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, and Leslie Ann Downey vanished into thin air. Taken from the world by the sadistic rape and torture duo Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. By 1964, Myra and Ian had become skilled child predators. They could lure children away from carnivals and busy markets without leaving a single witness in their wake. She was the cheese, and he was the mousetrap. Myra would win the children's trust and lead them to their tortured ends at Ian's hand. However, after they buried their fourth victim, 10-year-old Leslie Ann, Ian lost his lust for killing. And for Myra. They had already raped and murdered four children and gotten away with it. What more could they possibly do? How could they twist the knife deeper? How could they make the thrill bigger? Myra Hindley and Ian Brady hatched a depraved plan. They were going to murder their next victim before a live audience. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. Today, we'll take a look at the final murder of Myra Hindley and Ian Brady's killing career in the 1960s. We'll discuss how their terrible legacy has continued, forever alive in British history, thanks in part to what happened after Myra and Ian's trial. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. 
If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Last week, we dove deeply into the crimes and psychology of Myra Hindley and her lover, Ian Brady. By early 1965, 22-year-old Myra and 27-year-old Ian Brady were at an impasse with their murderous hobby. Ian was bored and afraid he had already accomplished all he would in his life. He would later tell his prison pen pal that he'd begun to hate himself after Leslie Ann Downey's murder, not because of the terrible things he and Myra had done to her, but because she had represented a pinnacle achievement for him. How could he ever top it? Myra could sense Ian pulling away from her. She followed the public search for Leslie Ann Downey obsessively and brought snippets back to him. She hoped that celebrating the police's failure to find Leslie Ann would help them bond again. But it didn't work. Ian only seemed happy when he spent time with David Smith, the husband of Myra's sister, Maureen. Ian saw a lot of his younger, radical self in David, and David satisfied Ian's need for adoration. Ian was, in a way, the man David aspired to be. He often turned to Ian for advice, unaware that he had chosen a monster in human clothing as his mentor. In July 1965, Maureen and David moved into a building near Myra and Ian's home. Myra arranged for all four of them to picnic on Saddleworth Moors any chance they could. On one of these outings, Ian drew David into his long-harbored fantasies of robbing a bank. David seemed as excited as Myra had been about the chance to make a life-changing amount of money. Together, he, Ian, and Myra began to plan their heist. But just as Ian had once tested Myra with the bank robbery fantasy to see if she would go along with him on something darker and deadlier, it also feels like Ian was testing David, too. Eventually, Ian boasted to David that he had killed and gotten away with it more than once. Though we don't know the context of the conversation, we do know that Myra wrote about the incident in her journal later. David didn't believe Ian and dismissed Ian's claims as drunken boasting. But telling David about what he had done seemed to reawaken something in Ian. In their time alone, Myra started to notice Ian's return to form. He was upbeat, excited, and pensive. He had something dark on his mind. Soon enough, she knew he would tell her what it was. On October 5th, 1965, Ian told Myra it was time to kill again. This time, however, they would let someone watch them kill. This person, Ian hoped, would become a sort of apprentice. This murder would also be different because Ian would lure their victim in this time. He already knew exactly who their victim would be. A young man he had met during his brief break from Myra in 1963, when Ian had frequented Manchester's gay bars. Just as she had done before their previous murders, Myra set about collecting supplies and organizing the particulars. She wrapped the trunk of her car in plastic and gathered their knife, lengths of cords, and shovels together. On the off chance they were discovered, Myra also gathered all of the notes they had put together for their potential bank robbery and hid them away from the house. Around 10.30 p.m. on October 6, 1965, Myra dropped Ian off at Manchester Central Railway Station and waited while Ian went inside to look for a familiar face. Ian spotted the teenager he was looking for immediately. 
17-year-old Edward Evans, an apprentice engineer at the railway station who Ian had met while cruising Manchester's gay bars the year before. Edward was drinking at the station's bar when Ian clapped him on the back and sat down to get reacquainted. At last call, Ian invited Edward back to his place to keep the party going. When Edward stumbled with Ian toward Myra's car and noticed her in the driver's seat, he hesitated. Sensing Edward's fear, Ian casually introduced Myra to Edward as his sister. Myra played along, and soon they had successfully coaxed the teenager into the car with them. Already we can see the differences between Ian's attempt to lure a victim in and Myra's casual ways of encouraging the children to come with her. Myra was friendly and appealed to the children through a request for help, and she was aided by the fact that many children instinctively trust women more than men. On the other hand, Ian used alcohol and the promise of a good time to get Edward in the car. Research with Engaged In has found that our fight-or-flight response is deeply ingrained into our perception of the world. When we make decisions, our brains are micro-calculating factors like body language, the environment, memories of past experiences, the prior warnings of loved ones, and so on. Edward's fight-or-flight response should have kicked into high gear when he saw Myra waiting in the car. Instead, his guard was lowered, both by alcohol and the fact that he already knew Ian. Additionally, studies by the Adult Development Center have found that a fear of missing out on an important, fulfilling, or pleasurable experience often switches off our instinct that we're in danger. Edward may have ignored the situation's danger cues because he was distracted by the promise of a good time at Ian's house. By the time they had reached Myra's house, Edward's instincts might have been kicking back in, but Ian and Myra suppressed them by popping the cork on another bottle of wine, easing an already tipsy Edward into a full-blown drunken stupor. Ian eased Edward onto the floor and told Myra it was time for her to summon David Smith. Myra slipped out of the house and walked three blocks to Maureen and David's home. When Maureen answered the door, Myra told her she felt unsafe walking alone so late at night. David offered to walk her home. Along the way, she told David she had something for him to take home with him and brought him inside. David waited patiently in the kitchen as Myra disappeared into the living room. And that's when he heard the scream. David burst into the living room and saw Ian wrestling with the teenage boy. Within seconds, Ian tossed the boy to the floor and reached for an axe. As Edward Evans screamed for his mother, Ian brought down the axe with a sickening thump. Blood splattered everywhere. Ian pulled the axe out and swung again and again. Each time, David could hear the click of metal against bone as the axe buried itself deeper into Edward's head and finally split his skull apart. After his 14th swing, Ian tossed the axe aside and finished Edward off by strangling him with a wire. Afterward, Ian turned to Myra and David, still smiling, and boasted that this had been their messiest kill yet. David felt paralyzed. He felt like a hot spotlight was bearing down on him. Ian and Myra clapped him on the back, joking that he hadn't believed them when they said they had killed before. He wondered how long that camaraderie would last if David let them know how terrified he was inside. If he didn't smile back, didn't act natural, would Ian and Myra kill him too? 
David made a heart-wrenching, split-second decision. His only hope of getting out alive was to play along with them. Ian suddenly began to limp, realizing that in his fury to kill the teenager at his feet, he had twisted his ankle. Ian told them they wouldn't be able to move the body out of the house until tomorrow. Myra asked David if he would help them wrap Edward's body in a bedsheet and carry him to a spare bedroom upstairs. And David did just that. His heart was racing with every step as he and Myra carried the dead, bleeding boy up the rickety stairs. Myra reassured David that he was one of them now, that they were in this together, forever. Myra finished cleaning up the remaining evidence and then invited David to a cup of tea. As the three of them sat at the kitchen table, Ian explained to David that they would need him to help bury Edward in Saddleworth Moor in the morning. Beaming with pride, Ian lapsed into a story about how a police officer patrolling the moors had spotted them burying one of their victims. Myra had cleverly convinced the police officer they were simply looking for a glove she had lost. The same lie she had used to lure Pauline Reed and John Kilbride to their deaths. On the outside, David hoped he was putting on a brave face. Inside, his mind was racing. He could feel his stomach desperately trying to retch up his dinner. But in the back of his mind, he believed if he gave away how he felt, he'd never leave the house alive. Finally, the conversation began to die down. David told them he would return at first light to help them move the body. Myra walked into the door and told him goodnight. David walked slowly to the corner, but once out of sight, he bolted down the street toward his home. David told his wife everything he had seen, everything he'd felt. She was also afraid of what might happen if David didn't return to help them bury the body in the morning. Before sunrise on October 7, 1965, Maureen and David slipped out of their house, carrying a carving knife for protection. They made their way to a public payphone and called the police. They told the police where the payphone was and that they would wait inside it, armed with a knife, until they arrived to take them to safety at the police station. Once there, David recounted the previous night. He told the police of his fears of being killed if he had tried to flee instead of helping to clean up Edward's body. He also told them about Ian's claims of having killed before, and his casual story about burying their victims in Saddleworth Moor. An hour later, two detectives and a police superintendent approached Myra's front door. After five years, Myra and Ian's killing spree was finally about to come to an end. Up next, we'll see what detectives found in the house. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. 
I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now back to the story. On October 7th, 1965, two detectives and the police superintendent knocked on Myra Hindley's front door. If David Smith was telling the truth, a teenage boy's axe-murdered body was lying somewhere inside that house. But nobody answered. The police superintendent returned to their car and put on a delivery man's outfit. Then he went around to the back of the house and knocked on the door there. This time, Myra answered the back door. Her expression was easy and welcoming, but grew colder as the superintendent asked to speak to her husband. She said she didn't have one, and the officer then moved past her into the house. He walked through the hallway to the front door, where the two detectives were waiting. The superintendent opened the door for the detectives. They asked Myra again if there was anyone else home, and she showed them into the living room where Ian was nursing his sprained ankle. She told them her grandmother was upstairs, but that she was a heavy sleeper. The detectives and police superintendent asked for permission to search the house, but their intent was clear. If Myra refused, they would simply sit in the living room and wait for someone to return with a warrant. So Myra obliged, giving them a tour of the second floor. In the first room, they found Myra's grandmother, The second was Myra and Ian's bedroom, and the third room was locked. Myra told the police she kept her guns locked in there for safekeeping. When they pressed her for the key, she told them she would have to go to work to fetch it. But the police superintendent called her bluff and offered to personally drive her there. Myra's face soured as she begrudgingly produced the key and handed it over. As the door swung open, they found the wrapped body of Edward Evans lying on the floor. His blood had coagulated purple across the sheet. Curiously, the officer's first impulse was not to ask Myra about her involvement in Edward's death, but instead to move past her to question Ian down in the living room. David had told police that Ian had killed Edward, that much is true, but he also told them of Myra's complicity in the crime that she had been just as excited and as eager to involve David as Ian had been. Double standards have existed about violence in women since the beginning of time. Culturally, we see women as gentler, nurturing, less prone to violence, and more likely to peacefully resolve most conflicts. However, studies by the National Institute of Mental Health and Journal of Personality and Social Psychology have shown that these double standards are nothing more than our own biases coloring our view of the world. In fact, they found that women are equally as likely to strike their partners or initiate violence in the home, although men are more likely to inflict serious injury. Myra Hindley is a unique case, of course. Her crimes against neighborhood children are unusual for anyone, but particularly for a woman, as most women, if they hurt children, hurt their own children, or those of people they know well. Myra kidnapped children she didn't even know. After the police found Edward's body in the upstairs bedroom, 
Ian told them he'd lost control in a fight with Edward the night before. He was taken into custody. The police were set to leave Myra behind at the house when she gathered her dog Puppet into her arms and asked to come with them to the police station. At the station, police took Ian's statement. His official account of what had happened to Edward Evans echoed the account David had given to police, save for a few key details. Ian told police on the record that he and Edward had gotten into a fight while David was in the kitchen. When the fight turned vicious, David rushed into the fray and picked up a stick to try and beat Edward away from Ian. When that didn't work, it was David who picked up the axe and struck Edward down for good. Then, Ian said, they both helped clean up the body with the intention of burying it the next day. When the police questioned Myra, she seemed completely unsure about the whole event. To police, she came across as a clueless woman trying to protect her boyfriend. They never suspected exactly how involved she had been in the crime. They just couldn't see in her what David had seen on the night of Edward's murder. Ian was charged with the murder of Edward Evans, while Myra was released freely back into the world. She went to stay at her mother's while police combed the active crime scene at her grandmother's house for clues. It didn't take much searching before police realized they'd let a monster go free. On October 11, 1965, bags of Edward's effects were found in Myra's house. Her fingerprints and drops of Edward's blood were also found on cleaning bottles in the kitchen. At the very least, the police accepted she had helped Ian and David cover up the crime. Myra was finally arrested as an accessory to murder. The detectives who had interviewed David, however, were mostly concerned with his claim that Ian and Myra had killed before. Ian hadn't actually named any of his other victims, and without any actual proof tying them to a specific murder, there was very little chance that forensic scientists could charge Myra and Ian with anything else. That was, at least, until the forensic team found some of Ian and Myra's trophies. In an exercise book, they discovered the scribbled name John Kilbride in Ian's handwriting, along with a series of landscape pictures of Saddleworth Moors. At the very least, police now had a name and a place. The same place David Smith had told them about in his initial crime report. They brought David in for a second interview. David told the police about their bank robbery plans, and that Myra and Ian had sealed all the notes and plans for it in a suitcase. But investigators couldn't find a suitcase in the house. It had to have been left somewhere else. Grasping at straws, David told police that everyone who knew Ian knew that he loved railway stations. Off that tiny lead alone, Manchester police set out to scour luggage depots and lockers in every railway station in Manchester. For the next four days, they searched dozens of stations, and eventually, they found what they were looking for. Two suitcases checked at Manchester's Central Station had Myra and Ian's names on the tags. The suitcases matched a luggage ticket they later found in one of Myra's prayer books. The suitcases contained nine pictures of a naked little girl tied to a bed, gagged with a scarf, and the 16-minute tape recording of what Ian and Myra had done to her. The girl was quickly identified as Leslie Ann Downey. The police were shocked, not only by what they heard, but by what it meant. For two years, children had been disappearing in Manchester without hope of ever being found. Suddenly, police had leads on two of them. 
John Kilbride and Leslie Ann Downey. With such startling and damning evidence in hand, police turned their attention to Saddleworth Moor. The moor, however, is a wild and barren landscape, spongy from the peat bog that covers its surface. Not only was peat used as a naturally available heating resource by almost everyone in Manchester at the time, it was often dug by hand, giving anyone an excuse to be found digging there. It also meant that irregular land shapes and mounds were common. The moor also stretches for 30 square miles. Ian and Myra's landscape photographs were too similar, too vague for police to narrow their search. David and Maureen were of little use here either. Even though they had picnicked on Saddleworth Moor with Myra and Ian for years, they could only point out locations where they had gone together, not where Ian might go alone. In the end, it was an 11-year-old neighbor named Pat Hodges who gave police the clue they needed. Perversely, Myra and Ian had routinely taken Pat Hodges out to play on the moors with them. Though they had never assaulted her or tried to kill her, Pat showed the police the areas where Ian and Myra had taken her. Manchester police set out on October 16, 1965, to conduct the largest ground search in Saddleworth Moor history. In one of the areas where Myra and Ian had taken Pat Hodges to play, Police spotted an arm bone protruding from the soft peat. The arm bone belonged to 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. Leslie Ann's mother was brought in to identify her body and her voice on the tape recording of Myra and Ian's assault. The memory of her little girl's voice pleading to be let go would haunt her until her death. Before the day was through, Manchester police arranged for Myra and Ian to be brought before a judge separately. Both were charged with Leslie Ann Downey's murder. To help police find other victims, they examined Ian's photos. One showed Myra crouching over the grave of one of their victims, holding her dog Puppet. Though the picture gave them a general idea of where the grave might be, they believed they could pinpoint the location if they knew how long ago it had been taken, which could be judged from how old Puppet had been in the photograph. A vet was brought in to examine Puppet's teeth while under general anesthesia. They were able to determine the dog's age, but Puppet's heart stopped during the procedure. When Myra learned of Puppet's death, she lashed out at police, calling them murderers, and wrote to her mother saying that nothing in her life had ever hurt her more. On October 26, 1965, police discovered John Kilbride's body, across a busy road from where they'd found Leslie Ann Downey's grave. John's body was clothed from the waist up. His pants and underwear were beside him in the grave, a staple of crime scenes where the victims have been sexually abused. He had decomposed to the point that his parents could only identify him by his clothing. Police charged Ian Brady with John's murder and charged Myra for housing Ian, knowing full well that he had killed John. Throughout the police investigation and during the trial, Myra would continue to seem aloof, confused, and naive about what she was being charged with. Myra insisted that Ian had taken John off onto the moors and returned later for her help burying him, but that she had no clue what had been done to the boy while Ian was alone with him. However, as we noted last week, Ian told reporters, police, and his prison pen pals that Myra had held John down while Ian had raped and strangled him. We'll never truly know what happened out on the moors that night, 
But the end result was the same. Myra had allowed a child killer to continue killing. As October 1965 gave way to November, the already chilly Manchester autumn gave way to a cold, merciless winter. Additional searches for bodies had to be called off due to snow. Myra and Ian wrote constantly to each other while they awaited trial. They were even allowed occasional visits together. During one of these visits, Ian proposed. Myra told her mother it was the happiest moment of her life, until her lawyer reminded her that spouses cannot be compelled to testify against each other. Their marriage was only a ploy to cripple the prosecution's case. Myra, however, refused to believe that Ian was trying to use her. On April 19, 1966, Myra and Ian's 14-day trial began. Reporters and news crews crowded the courthouse steps, hoping to be led inside for what they believed would be a carnival sideshow of a trial. To make matters even crazier, right as the trial began, the prosecution's most solid witness, David Smith, was discovered to have been profiting off Myra and Ian's impending trial. He had signed a contract with a tabloid to give his exclusive story to them once Myra and Ian had been convicted. Every time Myra and Ian were brought to the courthouse, they had to pass through throngs of people demanding that they be hung. But England had put an end to capital punishment in 1965, on the exact day Myra Hindley had been arrested for her part in Edward Evans' slaying. And while the masses screamed for her head on a spike, those who thought they knew Myra, who had grown up with her in Manchester, found her charges incomprehensible. After Myra was arrested, her mother had even gone so far as to disown her other daughter, Maureen, for helping the police arrest Myra, especially when she learned of David's attempt to profit from Myra's conviction. Myra and Ian watched the trial from within a bulletproof glass box in the courtroom. Both pleaded not guilty to all charges. Maureen was called in to testify first. She spoke for hours of the negative influence Ian Brady had had on her sister. Myra had become cold toward people, cold toward her religion, impressionable and secretive. David Smith came next. He was the prosecution's key witness and spoke for a full day and a half of what he had seen and heard on the night of Edward Evans' brutal murder. Ian and Myra also both testified. Under intense questioning, Ian finally admitted that he had been the one to strike Edward with the axe, not David Smith. Myra, however, kept her mouth as shut as she could. Her defense always seemed to be that she was elsewhere during critical moments. When Edward died, she said she had been in the kitchen. She had only helped clean when she was told to. As the questions turned to Leslie Ann Downey's murder, Myra again claimed she was elsewhere. When Leslie Ann had been photographed in pornographic positions, she had been downstairs. And when the little girl had been strangled, she had been filling the bathtub with water. There's no doubt she was hoping to avoid the harsher penalties of murder and sexual assault by blaming everything on Ian. But there was one piece of evidence neither of them could explain away. The tape recording of what they had done to Leslie Ann. After this, we'll hear Myra's downfall. 
The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. Myra Hindley and Ian Brady's trial for three child murders in 1965 caused one of the largest press frenzies in England's history. Every piece of testimony revealed more and more of the cruelty and depravity that had ruled their relationship for three years. And there was still one more piece of evidence to reveal in the case against the sadistic duo the 16-minute audio tape of their rape and torture of 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. Leslie Ann could be heard trying to negotiate with her captors. At one point, she begged, quote, I must tell you something. Hands off me a minute. Please, mummy. It hurts me. I want to see my mummy. End quote. The entire court heard Myra's response on the tape recording. She suddenly snapped at Leslie Ann to be quiet and threatened to strike her if she didn't shut up. The recording was played for the court in full. Women began to sob. Several police officers in the room were so shaken, they fled the room in anger and horror. One officer would later tell reporters that if he could have killed them with his bare hands, he would have gladly done so. But Myra and Ian were oblivious to the tape's effect. They completely ignored everyone in the room except each other while the tape played. When asked about her treatment of Leslie Ann, Myra tried to explain that she had only spoken so roughly to the girl because she wanted to keep her quiet. This justification for what she had done is quite common among serial killers. A massive survey of incarcerated serial killers compiled by the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology in association with the University of North Carolina revealed that almost 50% of the surveyed killers rationalized their crimes by laying blame on the victims themselves or by refusing to acknowledge that their victims had even been victims in the first place. As news of the tape recording spread like wildfire through the reporters gathered outside, Myra earned the infamous, immortal title, the most evil woman in the UK. Both Ian and Myra claimed during their testimony that Leslie Ann had been alive after Ian had assaulted her and that David Smith and another man had arrived to take Leslie Ann away. But this improbable denial couldn't diminish the effect of little Leslie Ann's voice for the jurors. On May 6, 1966, it took the jury just two and a half hours to find Myra and Ian guilty on all counts. Ian was found guilty for the murders of Leslie Ann Downey, John Kilbride, and Edward Evans, and was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Myra was found guilty in the murders of Edward Evans and Leslie Ann Downey, as well as harboring Ian knowing he had killed John Kilbride. She was sentenced to two life sentences plus seven years. She would be in prison for a minimum of 25 years before she could hope to walk free again. In the judge's explanation of the sentences, he expressed his belief that while Ian was irredeemably evil, Myra could still be saved 
once she was away from Ian's influence. Once again, we can see a gender double standard at work. Even experienced criminal judges refused to believe that a woman could willingly participate in the murder of children. The judges had listened to the tape of Leslie Ann Downey's pleas for help, heard Myra tell her to shut up, and could still believe in Myra's redeemability. The moment Ian's verdict was read out and he was led from the courtroom, all interest he had shown in Myra during the trial vanished without a trace. As he was escorted back to his cell, he never looked back. Myra was sent to Holloway Prison in London. The other women began to attack Myra almost from her first day behind bars. She needed a guard to escort her to and from her cell every day. She was beaten mercilessly numerous times and required hospital stays routinely throughout her first five years in prison. But the true punishment was inflicted on Myra's family. Maureen and David were also found guilty in the court of public opinion. People believed Ian and Myra's improbable story that David had participated in the children's murders. Neither of them could get work in Manchester, and Maureen gave up temporary custody of her children until she could find some way to support them. Eventually, David was attacked by a neighbor who accused him of being a child killer. David defended himself with a knife and was subsequently sentenced to three years in prison, where he attempted suicide. Ultimately, Maureen and David's marriage fell apart. They both relocated and changed their names in an attempt to escape their connection to Myra and Ian's crimes. No good deeds go unpunished, as the old saying goes. In the early years after their conviction, neither Ian nor Myra took responsibility for the murders of Pauline Reed or Keith Bennett. Which makes sense, of course, even with her consecutive life sentences, Myra still had the possibility of parole after 25 years. She could be set free by the time she was just 48 years old. Myra wrote to Ian often in the early days of their sentences. Even though he seemed cold toward her, they carried on a conversation in letters. They also both completed studies in German. But they eventually drifted apart. And that's when her story about her part in the killings began to change. Hindley always claimed that her role was to abduct the children and that she didn't take part in the killings or sex attacks. Once in jail, she said boyfriend Ian Brady had beaten and blackmailed her, threatening to kill her relatives if she didn't help him. Some of their victims were beaten, tortured and abused before being killed and buried on a desolate moor in northwestern England. Without Ian by her side, Myra began to cultivate other relationships while in prison. By 1968, she had befriended Lord Longford, a devout Catholic, who had visited her to see whether her soul could be saved. Lord Longford became almost obsessed with redeeming her. He would even try to get her paroled early on numerous occasions. Lord Longford's wife despised his meetings with Myra and especially hated how quickly he had begun to believe in Myra's goodness. That is, at least, until she visited Myra, too. Lady Longford became a passionate and vocal champion of Myra's, just like her husband, convinced not only of Myra's rehabilitation, but that she might actually be innocent. It was through her effect on Lord Longford and his wife that Myra's powers of manipulation began to emerge. Police investigators still trying to find additional bodies on Saddleworth Moor would visit her in prison only to discover that she had guards and staff wrapped around her little finger. For example, even though none of the other prisoners were allowed sharp objects, 
Myra was given permission to take up tapestry and knitting. She was given special permission to visit with family, both in and out of the prison as well. Research by the Center for Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University has found that manipulation is often one of the key characteristics of successful serial killers. And when a killer can both appear vulnerable and manipulate people around them, they're especially dangerous. In fact, these killers can often evade capture for decades if they don't make prideful mistakes in the process. In 1970, 28-year-old Myra found companionship with prison guard Trisha Cairns, who had once been a Carmelite nun before leaving the church after a crisis of faith. Myra and Trisha's relationship went unnoticed for two years until in 1972, when Trisha and Myra began planning Myra's escape from prison. Trisha copied prison keys, helped Myra forge a new passport with a fake name, and bought tickets for them to escape to Brazil, where Trisha believed they would work as missionaries. But in the last hours before the escape was set to happen, Trisha's supplies were discovered and she was arrested. She would serve six years in prison and resent Myra's effect on her for the rest of her life. Myra's way with people went above and beyond mere attempts to escape. She was also allowed to spend time in the part of the prison dedicated to mothers and children. At that time, imprisoned women were allowed to keep their children with them and care for them in the prison itself. Despite Myra's connections to the brutal rapes and murders of three children, several of the imprisoned mothers asked Myra to be their children's godmother. Nevertheless, every time a news article was published about Myra's crimes, Myra was once again beaten brutally by other inmates. In 1975, at the age of 33, Myra was hospitalized for six weeks after inmates threw her from the top floor of the prison. Myra's life became a tug of war between those who loved her and those who hated her. One psychologist would describe her as manipulative and devious, while the next would praise her work ethic and genuine rehabilitation. Despite her ability to make friends with benefactors like Lord Longford, Myra could not sway everyone in her favor. At the time of her imprisonment, the minimum sentence for people who had been given life sentences could be extended indefinitely if the courts believed the convict still posed a danger to society. In January of 1985, when Myra was 43 years old, her minimum sentence was extended from 25 years to 30. This would happen again and again through the remainder of Myra's life. Every time she neared her parole date, the English courts extended her sentence. Even worse for Myra, new information was about to come to light which would destroy any chances she thought she had of winning her freedom. In 1985, Ian Brady allegedly mentioned Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett's names to a journalist who had come to do an anniversary article about the Moore's murders. Police had long suspected Ian's involvement, but had never been able to find their bodies. However, after Ian's interview hit the press, neither Ian nor Myra would confess to killing the children. For over a year, Pauline and Keith's families waited for news that their babies could finally be put to rest. But their bodies remained lost. In November of 1986, Keith Bennett's mother even wrote to Myra, begging her to help them find their son's body. But Myra ignored the letter. 
until police suggested that helping them find the bodies might go a long way toward earning parole. Then she agreed to help. Myra left prison on two heavily guarded trips to Saddleworth Moor to help police search in late 1987. While there, she became disoriented easily and was unable to locate the bodies. Eventually, police realized she had simply used the search trips as an excuse to travel outside of prison, with no intention of actually helping. Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett's families were devastated. They appealed to one of Myra's biggest supporters, a reverend named Peter Topping, to speak with her on their behalf. On February 19, 1987, Topping sat Myra down and took her confession. For 17 hours, Myra spoke freely of what happened between 1963 and 1965. She finally admitted to helping Ian Brady murder 16-year-old Pauline Reed and 12-year-old Keith Bennett. She also confirmed what police had long suspected, that she had lured the children in with her babysitter charm. She also told Topping that her brother-in-law, David Smith, had been entirely innocent. For a hundred days, a team of local volunteers and police dedicated themselves to searching Saddleworth Moor for the remains of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. Pauline Reed's bones were found on July 1, 1987, almost 24 years to the day after she had first disappeared. Keith Bennett's body, however, has never been recovered, despite four additional widespread searches for him in the last 20 years. In 2002, England's right to extend life sentences indefinitely was challenged by another convict. If he won, hundreds of prisoners, including Myra, would be up for immediate release on parole. On November 25, 2002, that convict won his case, freeing a multitude of prisoners across the UK. But not Myra. In a karmic twist, Myra Hindley had died just 10 days earlier, on November 15, 2002, at the age of 60. Hindley died on Friday of respiratory failure following a chest infection after 36 years in prison. Her body has been kept under close surveillance following fears that someone might attempt to do her harm even after death or take pictures of the coffin to sell to newspapers. Funeral preparations are underway, but police are refusing to reveal when or where the funeral will take place. The mother of one of her child victims has said Hindley's death had brought her no comfort at all. Hindley, who was jailed for her part in two child murders and later confessed to two more, was Britain's longest-serving woman prisoner, Charles de Ledesma, London. In the end, Myra's submissive nature, Ian Brady's sadistic influence, and the abuse she experienced as a child can never excuse or erase the fact that she voluntarily lured five children to their early and painful deaths. For those crimes, she was condemned to live a long life, constantly reminded of what she had done to others, to lose the freedom she loved so much, and to be remembered forever as the most evil woman in the UK. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show, and if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. 
We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Jordan Trapier and stars Vanessa Richardson and Sammy Nye. 